Welcome back. Wonderful to connect with you again. And today I have a really special episode with a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Many of us hope that our presence will help make the world a better place than we found it. The way we go about this is deeply rooted in personal choice. And one of the most profound and impactful choices I made was to switch my diet and lifestyle to a plant-based one. I turned vegetarian in 2008 and vegan a couple of years after, or to be more precise, AVAP, as my philosophy is, the acronym standing for as vegan as possible. I found that everything I cared about most was connected to the food choices I make. With plant-based food, I choose animal and planetary welfare, fairer food systems, and more social justice, and as far as my own welfare is concerned, better mental, physical, and spiritual health. Plant-based foods help me support systems and philosophies that align with my principles. The way we eat can truly be revolutionary and evolutionary. That is why I live a plant-fueled life. And today's guest is a leading mind and heart of the vegan movement. Dr. Will Tuttle is a visionary author, spiritual activist, educator, and inspirational speaker. He has been vegan for over 40 years and wrote the acclaimed Amazon number one bestseller, The World Peace Diet, Eating for Spiritual Health and Social Harmony, published in 15 languages. He's also a recipient of the Courage of Conscience Award, as well as the Empty Cages Prize. Will created several wellness and advocacy training programs and is also co-creator of Vegan Palooza, the largest online vegan event to date, as well as co-founder of the nonprofit Circle of Compassion and the Worldwide Prayer Circle for Animals. Will has a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, focused on educating intuition and altruism in adults, and he has taught college courses in creativity, humanities, mythology, religion, and philosophy. A former Zen Buddhist monk and a Dharma master in the Korean Zen tradition, he has delivered over 4,000 presentations worldwide with his wife Madeline, a visionary artist from Switzerland, to promote and inspire peace, social justice, health, animal and environmental protection, and cultural healing and awakening. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Welcome to the Superhumanized Podcast. It's such a pleasure to connect with you, and I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. I've been following the great work you've been doing in this world, and you are truly an inspiration. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Oh, I'm delighted, and thanks everyone for listening in. It's great to be with you, Ariana. 
And well, for those in the audience who may still need to learn a little bit more about you, you have authored an amazing best-selling book amongst other, The World Peace Diet, Eating for Spiritual Health and Social Harmony. And I especially love that you take reference to the spiritual aspect of eating and how it affects us as a whole. So I would, if you wouldn't mind, could you give our audience a little bit background on yourself and how veganism became part of your life's journey and mission? Absolutely. Yeah, I was raised in a typical family in many ways back in the 1950s in Concord, Massachusetts, eating the usual meals of lots of meat, dairy products and eggs. And I think it was a combination. Concord, Massachusetts had a, a, a deep grounding in spiritual understanding through Emerson and Thoreau and Alcott and those early people who were bringing teachings from Asia into the United States, Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism, as well as contemplative Christianity and broadening the way we look at spirituality. And then before that, in the 1700s, there was the Revolutionary War. So it was still very much alive. My father, every April 19th, would get dressed up in his Minuteman outfit and get the gun off the wall. And we'd go down and we would reenact the Revolutionary War, the Battle at the Old North Bridge in Concord. And there's this basic idea that revolution is a positive thing. We should, if you have it, we should be willing to make a change. And so I think, and my father owned a whole chain of newspapers. So I grew up really in this world of newspapers and media and politics. And I also learned from that to not trust the media <laughs> because I could see how he couldn't run news articles that advertisers would object to. So I had this sort of very deep awareness that I think most people don't really have of, of knowing that whatever's in the media, don't trust it. It's not true. That really, we need to have alternative media if we want to really get to the truth of things. But I remember when I was just young, like maybe seven years old, I asked my mother about the food we were eating because we ate the usual meals. And I asked her if it was the same food that everybody eat in the whole world. They eat the same way we do. And my mother thought about it. She said, yeah, it's pretty much typical food. And then she left. And then she came back a few minutes later and she said, well, that's not totally true. There are vegetarians. And I had never even heard that word in my life. And I asked her what a vegetarian was. And she thought for a minute and she just said, don't worry about it. You're never going to meet one. <laughs> I don't know where they get their protein. She said, so I had this image of these very rare people who were pathetic and didn't have enough protein. And I was just so glad I wasn't a vegetarian. But the neat thing was I did learn more about animal agriculture because I went away to a summer camp in Vermont when I was in like 13, 14, 15 years old, as like early teens, where I would actually participate in what they would do. And I would actually hold a chicken and cut her head off. I actually we actually, I actually worked with killing some animals in, a, in dairy. We would kill a dairy cow every year. So I really saw the suffering of the animals. I participated in it, but I was so indoctrinated by every day, three times a day for 13 years, eating not just the food, but also the narrative that these animals are just here for us to use. They don't have a soul. They're inferior. We're superior. If you don't eat them, you're going to die in 24 hours of a protein deficiency. And this whole narrative... So I couldn't really question it until I went away to college in Maine in the early 1970s. And I did start to question things then. It was during the Vietnam War era. And I just started questioning things. And I started reading some more spiritual literature. I started practicing meditation for the first time and yoga. And then I just decided with my younger brother, Ed, to leave home and go on a spiritual pilgrimage so that I could deepen my spiritual practice. I didn't really want to 
just dive into my father's business, even though he would have loved that. But I felt like I, I would be a big distraction from the spiritual calling that I felt stronger and stronger. So we decided we would walk all the way with no money to California, just go <laughs> and just meditate to see what happens. And it was an amazing adventure. We, were, we got about as far as Buffalo, New York, and then we walked south all the way eventually to Alabama. Wow. And on the way, and this was in 1975, on the way we stopped as we, when we headed south. We, it was during the time of hippie communes, and we stayed in some different communities and communes in Kentucky. And then in Tennessee, there was a huge one, the largest one in the world. It was called The Farm, and it was about almost a thousand people, and they were all vegetarians. They were mostly from California. It was a nice, it was a nice time we had there, and that was it. Going there really made the change. I, I was with 900 people. They were all vegans. We, no one called them vegans because we didn't know that word back then. It, it was an unknown word. But there was no meat or dairy or eggs, and I asked them about it, and they told me the reasons to reduce violence to animals, also to feed hungry people since so much of the grain we grow goes to animals while people starve. That causes war. They wanted to have a world of peace. So to eat lower on the food chain so there's enough for everyone to eat. So all of that made sense to me. So I never ate meat in my life after that conversation I had at the farm with this fellow in 1975, because I could see they were up, people were thriving. The little kids, they had 200 kids, vegan from birth. Everybody was healthy. And I could see it was a good idea. And I was really on my own. I could eat whatever I wanted. And I learned from them how to make soy. It was during the early days, it was mainly everything was soy. And <laughs> we made the first soy ice cream which was terrible, but we thought it was pretty good because <laughs> first non-dairy ice cream. But anyway, that was it. And then a few years later, I ended up living in monastery in Zen centers and meditation centers in California. I became a vegan in 1980 because I made the connection with dairy and egg production. And then a few years later, when I was about, I guess it was 1984, in my, I was in my late 20s, I became a Zen Buddhist monk. So I shaved my head and I was living in a monastery in South Korea, where we were meditating every day from nine, from three in the morning till nine o'clock at night. And it was a vegan community also. It was the second time I was in a vegan community, but this time they've been practicing veganism for 750 years. So it was this ancient tradition of meditation and practicing ahimsa or nonviolence to, to all living beings as a foundation for spiritual clarity and maturity and as a way of creating a society of harmony. So that really deepened the sense I had of veganism as a human foundational birthright. <clears throat> it's really our true nature. It's just we get hijacked and our, we get colon our mind gets colonized by yes. toxic program of hurting animals and eating them. So that was how I came into it. So for me, that I did, I've done a huge amount of research because I got my PhD at Berkeley and did a lot of work in public health and nutrition, as well as sociology, anthropology, and history, and taught college courses in philosophy and literature and all these different generalists. I just liked seeing how everything fits together. But then I spent many thousands of hours just in meditation, just sitting in silence and making connections. And so. I think when we make these deeper connections and we see how our treatment of animals boomerangs back on us, absolutely without fail as individuals and collectively, then we have a foundation 
for veganism, which is absolutely stable. We really understand it at a deeper level. And it's very liberating. It's enormously liberating and inspiring, I think, to have that kind of understanding. But it takes a while to, to get to it. Yes, absolutely. And what I really love and admire about your journey and what you stand for, Will, is that you are able to connect these dots that a lot of people first wouldn't even see a connection by. All the rich life experience you've had from your upbringing and your family, through your travels, through your studies. And you already talked about it a little bit prior when you spoke about the world of media that you were able to look behind the curtains. And the something that's really difficult, and I speak from my personal experience, is to actually recognize the hidden programming and then unravel it, peel back the layers so we can find back to our essential truth. I remember, for example, when I was maybe 18, 19, 20 years old, I already had a history. I would collect signatures for Greenpeace when I was six years old, save the seals. I would help clean up a site of a pond for certain amphibians to survive in, in school. I would have probably which is certainly not part of Ahimsa, I would have probably punched somebody in the face if they would have <laughs> kicked a rat or a pigeon on the street and if I would have seen that. However, at the same time, I, I ate meat, I ate dairy, I didn't think twice about wearing some old hand-me-down fur coats from my mom when I was 18, 19, 20 years old in Berlin. And even though I would consider myself a relatively well-educated person also at that time, I was not able to connect the dots. That's how deep the conditioning went. And so I would like to dive a little deeper into this hidden programming when it comes to food. You already mentioned, of course, we are immersed, most of us, when we're children into this paradigm. Animals are there for food. They don't have a soul. They're less than us. I would like to go deeper. Can we dissect this a little more, please? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. One of the things that I discovered when looking into anthropology, for example, is that every society does what we all know. Every society replicates itself from generation to generation. It replicates its language and values and norms and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But if you have a society that's based on violence and oppression and domination and exploitation of animals and nature and so forth, it's going to replicate itself. And so it's going to wound those who are born into the society the same way the parents were wounded. It's a series of wounds that are invisible. We don't see them. And so the interesting thing is that the primary way that any society does this is through rituals, the rituals in that society. And the primary ritual really in every society our meals, when, you, when we sit down to eat food, this, is some, this brings everybody together in a very powerful way. And so there's all kinds of narratives that are implicit in the food. So when we're eating food, we're not just eating food, we're eating a whole constellation of stories and narratives about our relationship with nature, with animals, with each other, between men and women, with God, the universe and everything. And that's all invisible. We don't talk about it, it's just there. And so one of the things we can do is just to become aware of the kinds of programming that's going on when we're eating animal-based foods and look at it more deeply. What are the hidden subtext of the actual meal? And when we look at the hidden subtext of meals of animal-based foods, 
we can see that they're very harmful to us. I can give you a few of them. Yes, one of the most Yeah, one of the most basic ones is don't make the connection. That is, the, that is given as the fundamental teaching when we're sitting down at Sunday breakfast and we're eating our bacon and eggs and oatmeal and whatever we're having. No one would ever say, gosh, I wonder what her life was like. Her life? Who are you talking about? I'm talking about the pig we're eating or the hen. We're, we never go there. So this is a wound, but it's just the essential wound is don't make the connection. And my PhD at Berkeley focused on educating, on education. I focused a lot on intuition and intelligence. And intelligence is basically the capacity to make relevant connections capacity to make these connections. If we can, if we don't have that capacity, if we just don't make connections, that's a loss of cognition, of cognitive ability. And it's not just cognitive, it's also emotional. There's an emotional connection. I would say also, actually myself, there's spiritual intelligence as well. There's emotional intelligence, cognitive intelligence, spiritual intelligence. And what agriculture does, living in a society where we're compelled from infancy to sit at the table with these people, these adults who dominate us, not like that, but they're our role models for how to live. We just embrace them intuitively. Every species looks to their parents for how to eat food, ducks and geese and humans, and we all do. So that's the thing. So we're, so this ritual is eroding our intelligence with every meal and we don't realize it. It's numbing us psychologically, emotionally, it's also numbing us and disconnecting us from our natural capacities of wisdom and clarity and to see deeply. So every meal is actually a ritual where we learn to stay shallow and not look deeply, not feel deeply, not listen deeply, not care deeply. And we don't want to think about that, the cow whose baby was stolen so we could have that cheese and whose baby and how she was impregnated against her will on a rape rack and that we paid for that and we caused that. No, we don't go there. So that's a, a terrible wound. And that's just one. But that's, a, that's just right there. It does a couple of things. It also makes us as human beings much more easily controllable by a wealthy elite because we will they're much more easily believe whatever we're told. We don't look deeply, we don't make connections. It's an, an authoritarian kind of hierarchical mentality. And the basic, the basic underlying paradigm also of agriculture is that the strong dominate and exploit the weak. And that's the underlying subtext of every meal. It's we're eating this idea that certain beings are inherently superior, other beings are inherently inferior, it's totally fine for the inherently superior beings to dominate and exploit and abuse the inherently inferior beings however they want. Because we may say that we're working for peace and justice and freedom and equality on the outside, but every meal at the deeper level ritually is injecting us with the exact opposite teaching that what we actually are all about is dominate, is the strong dominating the weak, might makes right, privilege and elitism and injustice and exclusion. That's the other thing, like we, we wanna be inclusive and include all beings within the sphere of our compassion, or at least we say that perhaps, but again, animal agriculture is very strictly exclusive. We don't, we learn to exclude other beings. We don't care about those. And so those are some of the underlying hidden narratives. The other main one I'll mention, I think it's very important also to understand, and I refer to this in the World Peace Diet, 
as the domination of the sacred feminine. Right. So the goddess of wisdom in the Greek tradition was Sophia, and we get our word philosophy, the love of wisdom. And Sophia, in all the world's wisdom traditions, was typically portrayed not as a masculine deity, but as a feminine deity. And so this feminine deity, this feminine divine wisdom, represents a capacity within human beings to love and nurture life, to love and protect life, and to care for those who are weak. Women, I think especially, giving birth to a little baby who needs a lot of care, even though they're a bunch of trouble. That's the foundation of a healthy individual, a healthy family, a healthy society, all of that. But animal agriculture is all about suppressing Sophia. We don't care deeply. We just harm these beings without connecting with them, without acknowledging them, without respecting them, without having any sense of kindness or compassion or empathy for them. And this suppression of Sophia allows this, us to eat animal-based foods, but it also allows, for example, corporations to, like you were saying, to, to pollute and destroy life and to target our children with products that are harmful using violence and disease and pornography and all these things. Whereas Sophia would not allow that. Sophia would be rising up and protecting the community like you were as a little children. That was your Sophia energy. Don't kill the frogs and protecting the ponds and protecting animals and protecting children and protecting the future generations, all of that. So animal agriculture, unfortunately, it's portrayed to us as something beneficial. And we're taught, oh, it's so great. This is how we get our protein. This is how we get our calcium. This is how the West was won. This is what makes us strong. This is what makes us unique. It's eating these foods that are part of our society. But it's a Trojan horse. It's, it appears to be good, but it actually the underlying effect is to destroy our physical health, our psychological health, our spiritual health, our intellectual clarity, our cultural health in many ways, our, certainly our environmental health is destroyed by animal agriculture. So it's attacking every dimension of health, and yet most people think of it as something positive. We need to have this. It's, we think it tastes good, but more than that, what it does is it binds us to our tribe. That's the real thing. That's the problem, I think, essentially, is that we human beings do have capacities of rationality, and logic and intellectual clarity, all those things. We also have capacities of empathy and kindness and caring. We all do, people have that. But those can be easily suppressed by the force of tribalism, by the sense of, of I just want to fit in and be part and be liked and go along and do what the authorities tell me to do, that tell my children to do what I did. It's this kind of hierarchical, all those things. They, it's amazing. They just trump our empathy and our rationality. And that's the problem. Yeah. Yes. And I think something that's really important to acknowledge here is that these, these are urges that are so deeply rooted. They're tied to our survival instinct. So yeah. feeling to be expelled from the tribe is something that is deep down truly terrifying. That's why, because it means that we're very likely to die. We don't have the support and protection from the tribe anymore. That's why we get so nervous when we feel go and into public speaking, for example, or speaking up during a team meeting. It's not necessarily the potential to being disliked. It's what's tied to it. It's not being an accepted part of the group of the tribe anymore. 
And so I think it's really important that we look at this when we recognize this. That's when we also can remedy it. And what I think is really wonderful today is that we see the, I'm not a big friend of tribalism, tribes being with one particular group. I've always loved having, being blessed with very eclectic friendships all around the world and all across the human expression. But there are if we want to use the word tribes rising, that actually revere the sacred feminine, that especially younger generations that eschew a lifestyle that is based on, even if they don't call it that way, but ahimsa, by the choices they make, what they eat, they stay away from animal proteins, how they dress, what they buy. It's important for them where things come from. And that gives me a lot of hope. Something you mentioned in an interview of yours before that I found when I researched you is you say that cultures and food systems are absolutely connected. And could you expand on this for us a little bit further, Will? Yeah, sure. I think food is the most intimate connection that we have with nature, right? We all know that you can't get more intimately connected with nature and world around us than eating. It actually becomes the temple of our being. And so it's our most intimate connection with nature. Food is our most intimate connection with nature, but food is also our most intimate connection with our society. It's how we actually take in and how we not only survival, but also every celebration always has a feast. The word feast comes from the same root as festival. There's all these religious festivals, there's connotations of every institution in our society. Is It comes out of the fundamental orientation that we have toward nature and towards food. And the point I make in the World Peace Diet is that historically, we had a revolution about 10,000 years ago in the Eastern Mediterranean region of the world, where we started for the first time to herd animals. I call it the herding revolution. Herder is the word I coined just to explains our society. And again, this is invisible. Most people, if you ask them, do you live in a herding society? They would say, no, I'm not, we're not herding animals. That's far, long ago, far away, people did that. No, we do live in a herding society. It's now massively industrialized and computerized and so forth. And in many ways, invisibilized. <laughs> we don't see really inside these gigantic, innocuous looking sheds where maybe 10,000 chickens or 1,000 pigs or whatever live. But we have vast acreage of monocrop, genetically engineered corn and soy and alfalfa and other grains to feed these animals. And so it's an absolute environmental devastation that is more or less invisible. We don't see it. We people I know we lived in an RV traveling around the United States for 17 years. So I really had an eye to see what is animal agriculture. And most people I think as we drive through most of the United States, for example, in Canada and Australia and Europe and everywhere we travel to China, there's all these fields most people think it's food for humans, but it's most of it isn't. It's food for these animals that you don't see. And it's environmentally devastating because all the toxins, the heavy metals, the PCBs, the dioxins, the runoff of the chemical fertilizer and the pesticide, herbicide, and fungus, it all ends up in the water. It causes an enormous amount of disease and wildlife devastation and species extinction and destruction of habitat and all boomerangs back to us as sickness, but this whole thing, this whole type of this whole culture is a result of this herding revolution 
that happened in what is today Iraq and the Eastern Mediterranean region about 10,000 years ago. And that revolution was a real revolution, I think, because it changed our fundamental orientation toward nature and each other and everything. Whereas the revolutions since then that we talk about, like the industrial revolution, scientific revolution, various ones that we talk about now, I don't really see them as being revolutions in the sense that we can eat and kill more animals faster than ever because of the industrial revolution. You know, it just intensified what was already there. So I, that's one of the reasons I think we're, we need a benevolent revolution now, like a real revolution or an evolution perhaps, or another way of living, because that revolution, and anthropologists aren't really sure why it happened, but people started to own wild sheep and then wild goats, and then about 2,000 years later, wild cows and then other animals as property. And that initiated about six things to happen, all of which are really harmful overall to our happiness and our health and so forth. And those six things are number one, animals status was just destroyed because once you own a being as an object, whether it's whatever it is, an animal or a human, their status drops. And so they become despicable. It's something you got to use and kill. And not just the animals we own, but even the other animals, their status dropped also because now they're seen mainly as pests. Right? They can interfere with my property animals. So we want to get rid of them. So this whole kind of war against nature and the discounting of the natural world and seeing ourselves as superior, that happened. Second thing that happened was that, that gave rise also gradually to a wealthy elite class. It's very interesting that there was no wealthy elite class until we had animal agriculture and then certain men accumulated many more animals. Like they had a lot of sheep and goats and cows and these animals were wealth. The more, we the more you had, the more wealthy and wealth and power you had. And so the old Latin word capita, which means head, we get our word capital and capitalism and so forth. So these wealthy elites that emerged 8,000 years ago or so in the Eastern Mediterranean, they were wealthy and powerful, and they were the sort of proto-capitalists who owned wealth and the means of producing wealth, but they needed land and water. And so that led to this aggression. And I remember I used to teach Plato, Plato's Republic, for example, and Socrates says very clearly in there, 2,500 years ago, if we want to have more animals, if we want to eat more meat, then we'll have to go to war. And they say, yeah, we'll have to go to war if we want. Everybody knew that, but we've lost sight of that. So that's the second, that's the third thing, is war. It led to this, the ancient word gavia, it's the old Sanskrit word for war, and it literally means the desire for more cows. It's the mm -hmm. oldest word for war. So we had the beginning for the very first time on planet Earth of the institution of war, which is the most devastating thing there is, right? Probably, but that's a direct result of animal agriculture, of this way of seeing animals, of needing land and water, of a competition for that and fighting. And that led directly to slavery because we crossed a line. Human beings, I think on some level knew we should not start owning animals as property because you then confining them. There's nothing worse you can do to a free living animal than to, to put her in a cage. They hate that. But what we did was we started having them born into cages. That's even worse, to have beings born into a prison. And the only way they can be born into a prison is to sexually abuse them. If they sexually abuse the female, if they impregnate her against her will and steal her baby and put him in a cage, that's extremely violent and satanic. It's really, if there's anything evil, that's just to take innocent, life-loving, free-living beings 
and to just confine them and sexually abuse them and have them born only to cut their throats. It's something we had to say that God wanted us to do. We blamed the gods or whatever as some way to rationalize this. But that revolution of disconnectedness from nature, of enslaving whoever lost these wars, the animals would become the property of the victor. That was the whole point. To get that wealth, but then the humans—they became the property of the victor, and they start. People started impregnating them too, and selling the slaves the same way they did. And, and then women—the status of women—that was the next thing. The fifth thing was that women's status was reduced because the whole eye, the eye that is developed by the herding culture of a male herder, is that looks at the female as a breeder, a mere breeder. We just breed them, and you try to manipulate the breeding to get bigger ones and stronger ones, and so. The whole idea is, well, I want a woman who will give me a big, strong son. This yes. idea of, of domination. The woman who is not in charge and doesn't have agency about her own right. sexuality and expression of self. So, yeah, women were brought and sold like chattel property. If you just read these, I used to teach these college classes. I was teaching Epic of Gilgamesh and the Iliad, the Odyssey, and these old Old Testament books and things. And yeah, and then boys, of course, they're, they have a role model of a hard, tough, disconnected male that they have to emulate and, dis and just suppress any natural feelings of tenderness and mercy and kindness and gentleness because they have to be tough and capable of violence towards rival herders and animals and women. So this arising in the Eastern Mediterranean region of a very several, several different warlike war patriarchal societies that, that spread, dominated, and destroyed other civilizations that were more peaceful and into the northern Mediterranean region and then into Central Asia and in, then into Europe. And then from Europe, it just, they, then they spread, like, you know, the colonialism spread into North and South America and, and worldwide. And we've traveled all over the world quite a bit and uh, giving lectures promoting veganism. And we've been to Africa and Asia and all over South America and the Middle East and Europe. And everywhere you go, you can see it's this is still spreading through Conagra and Cargill and Monsanto, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Burger King and McDonald's and the IMF and the World Bank and this whole complex. I call it the military, industrial, meat, medical, pharmaceutical, media, banking complex that siphons wealth away from the 99.5% of the people into a tiny elite and makes money on disease and war. And that's where and we're born into that today. So that's the revolution. That's why food is so important. If we're going to eat that food, then we're basically not only enslaving animals, but we're enslaving ourselves. We don't realize it, but we're sowing the seeds of our own imprisonment in a system that exploits us as we exploit animals. What you put on your plate is truly revolutionary or evolutionary, or rather, it, uh, so, many, right. yeah, so many things that people, you know, so often, and it's not just older generations, but that say, oh, it's always been like that. Yeah. This accepting of a narrative that's not even the true story. And whether it's something like, oh, human beings have always been at war or you know when you get older you just get sick you this acceptance <laughs> of that the last 10 20 years of your life that's you spend those in misery and that's also why you don't want to get old because old age equated with disease and being miserable or the acceptance the the strong quote dominate the quote weak And so I do see, though, that there's a lot of people who are writing new stories, new narratives, and individuals such as yourself and your wife have certainly inspired so many of us 
to do that and to grasp the pens or the keyboards and <laughs> tell our own stories, write new stories. And with regards to the story or rather the idea of veganism, in your mind, Will, what is the most misunderstood thing about veganism? Wow. That's a really good question. Thank you, by the way, for these excellent questions. I really appreciate your, the depth that you are addressing everything. And uh, I think there's a number of things. You addressed uh, just now briefly the idea of the power of cultural narratives and whoever controls the narrative is actually controlling the people and the society. And what veganism is essentially is an arising, I think, of our inherent wisdom to create a new narrative, a new story that more accurately reflects our true nature and our relationship with the created order, one of respect and kindness to, for each other and for animals and for nature, and, and of the basic benevolence that really we are surrounded by here. And I think one of the most misunderstood aspects of veganism, probably there's a few things. One is health. You mentioned health. When we get older, well, it's just natural to last, once we hit 50 or 60 or something, we're going to body starts falling apart and those ideas and we're going to and you read you read about the percentage of people over 60 that are on medications it's so high it's 70 or 80 percent or on some kind of medication and i just think it's so important to tie the connect these dots together like i've taken responsibility for my health i haven't been to a pharmacy to get a drug in 50 years and since the early 1970s and, and I'm now, in a few months, I'll be 70 years old. And I think the thing to understand is that when we take responsibility for our health, and part of that really is through nutrition, eating a healthy, organic, plant-based, as much as possible, whole foods diet. It's not only food. Food is a huge part of it, but also exercise and movement are important. Our attitudes and relationships are important. Our spirituality and sense of inner peace are important. Our connection with nature is important. Being creative and having a purpose for our life that's enlivening and gives us a real sense of, of a meaning in our life. All of these things are essential. So we can eat a very healthy diet, but if we're not exercising and if we're not, if we have a lot of relationships where we're angry and frustrated and jealous or that kind of thing, that can really harm. We can be sick. So I don't want to oversimplify health. I think we have to really see it in a big picture. But a lot of people also in become vegans for the animals only have this idea that is a much superior motivation than being vegan, say, for one's own health. And I can see that. I've, I can see that. And I, I've said that myself in a sense that it's important for us to deepen our motivation. If I go vegan only for my health, because I don't want to have diabetes or a heart attack. It's better to deepen that motivation to care about animals because that's a much more stable motivation because we can always cheat a little bit if it's just about ourselves. But once we understand there's an animal going to get harmed if I do this, then I'm not going to cheat. <laughs> it, makes, it makes a much more powerful motivation. But I really think it's important for us to also, as, ve as vegans, understand that it's very compassionate to others, to animals and ecosystems and other human beings, to be healthy, to take, really take responsibility for our health. Because if we're not doing that, then we're burdened on other people, really, and animals and ecosystems. People who are eat, we're, our, the pharmaceutical industry is making millions and millions of drugs, which are all consumed and then excreted into the water. And I'm reading about fish and frogs and amphibians and even dolphins and fish who are suffering terribly from the pharmaceutical residues of human, sick human beings. So for me, part of being a vegan is not taking drugs, pharmaceuticals, because 
they're all tested on animals. Many of them have animal products in them or have come from cell lines of the animals. So to try to really take responsibility for our health and broaden our understanding of veganism to include compassion and health as, as aspects of compassion, being healthy is some beautiful thing. The more we work hard to have our physical body, get plenty of exercise and fresh air and sunshine and question the official narratives that tell us we're gonna be getting sick, and just don't believe that stuff. To try to stand porter at the gate of our thought and only allow in true thoughts. Not Don't allow in these lies that are disempowering that come from our society. Take responsibility for the quality of our consciousness. Take responsibility for the quality of our relationships. Take responsibility for the quality of our food. And that's real freedom. Freedom doesn't come from just doing whatever we want to do. Freedom comes from being responsible for how we live our life and how it affects other people and animals and future generations and ecosystems and hungry people and workers. All of that, the more inclusive we are, what I've discovered is the more joy we feel. This is irony. It's like we think that if we consume a lot, you really consume like, the, like Bill Gates, I should have at least five jets of my own in a 180,000 square foot house and I can really and I'm big and happy. This is subconsciously what we're taught in our society that whoever consumes the most has the most happiness. And what I found living in an RV, where if I wanted to buy a new pair of pants, I had to give away a pair of pants. I didn't have any place to put another pair of pants. We're living right now for four months in a little van, which is 48 square feet. Minim to me, minimalism is a very strong expression of veganism. It just reduce our footprint. And what I found is there's a tremendous happiness in that. It's like the less I own and have to take responsibility for, the more simple life is, the more I can just look out at the world and just feel a sense of love and a sense of, and really savor the beauty of nature around me. Doing the most I can to minimize my impact on a harmful impact. And I think the more we do that, the more we really try to minimize the violence that we have, and then the other thing, the final thing I'll say, which I think is the biggest actually, is a lot of people think that when they go vegan, they've pretty much arrived, right? I'm, I'm now, I'm here, I'm done. I'm finished, I'm vegan, I'm not the problem. Those people, the non-vegan, they're the problem. So now what I have to do is I have to change all those people. I'm perfect, they're not. They're the, I'm in that basic idea. And that to me is more, the longer I'm in this movement, and I've been in the movement for over 40 years, I see that as a kind of a poisonous attitude because it leads to this sense of not taking this next step in veganism. So to me, the most important thing when we go vegan is obviously stop eating animal foods and buying them and going to rodeos and circuses and all these, not, don't support it. But the next step is to cultivate ahimsa or nonviolence in our relationships, not only with animals, but with human animals. And that means opening up to a whole other way of being loving and kind and questioning the narratives in our mind about our relationship with people that allows us to use them as instruments to get what we want. So it really leads to this never ending spiritual effort to purify and awaken our consciousness ever more highly and so what I come to now is that the best way we can really be effective as vegan advocates is not so much to try to change other people like they're the problem. It's really to change myself so that I'm actually fully embodying the ideal of veganism, which is almost a really unattainable goal of pure love for all expressions of life. And the more I can embody that, 
the more people will feel it. They'll, and so the irony, the great irony, just to close, is that if I go around trying to change other people because I'm right and they're wrong, people resist. I would resist if someone came up to me like that. And we get nowhere. We just get a bunch of people that think vegans are self-righteous people that don't get... So the more I don't try to change other people, I just try to make myself be a vehicle of this and just plant seeds as I live my life, the more other people really change. They, we get Our movement will grow so much, I think, more powerfully and unstoppably as we, vegans, try, do our best to embody this in the few decades that we're living on this earth, because we're not here forever, we're only here for a few decades, to just live a life every single day. When we wake up, we can give thanks. I have another opportunity to learn and to grow and to contribute to the in making a higher consciousness here on shine more light and more love into the, my, the web of relations, however I can. And that's a great, that's living a life and do it authentically in our own unique way and without trying to compare ourselves to other people. And I think when we create that kind of a movement, that's a leaderless movement, really, where everyone is an, is, is an activist and everyone has their own way of bringing the, bringing the message, and we each do our best to embody it rather than try to change other people, change ourselves. This is the one I can actually change. Then I think, as I was saying, we'll have a movement that's ultimately unstoppable and will grow faster and faster. And we just really need to reach a kind of a critical mass. And then I think everyone will, because more and more we see that people understand what veganism is all about. There are efforts, I think, being made by big corporations to dilute and infiltrate our movement. And so that's another reason why it's really important for us to have high quality consciousness on our side that we're savvy and we're aware of that. And But we still just keep giving the message out and living it as best we can every day. Absolutely. Well, and I could not agree more with you. I've also found throughout my own path on this journey that reaching out a hand instead of pointing fingers at right. others is always more beneficial for everyone involved. And living by example is what draws people to you. And initially, they may come to you for reasons that are more of a superficial nature. In my case, I often get asked, how, what do you do for your skin? What do you do for your fitness? I'm always very happy to share because I know that this is like a domino effect. Once people implement a change in their life, and even if it maybe for a more superficial reason at first, they will feel so much better. Things open up, things connect again, that we're disconnected and the bigger picture unfolds for them. I've witnessed this so many times where years ago, maybe somebody came to me for some, some physical enhancement optimization re reason on how to change their diet. And years ago, they are fully immersed emotionally and spiritually. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think we, we find that ultimately we can't change other people, but like you're saying, we can plant seeds. And I think one of the best ways to plant seeds is to just tell our own story without changing some, without pointing like they're the problem. Say, I did, like, I think one of the best things we can say is, I discovered that the only reason I was eating animal foods all those years I did was I was just following orders. And then I realized it wasn't a good idea, so I'm not doing it anymore. And it's fantastic. Yeah. And just that basic idea, because that's the only reason anyone eats animal foods is they're just following orders, actually. And so, we're actually telling our story, but we're also telling their story. <laughs> and then if we don't try to change them, if we just say it with love and just and respect, then their own wisdom will begin to water the seeds that we planted and they will feel 
themselves pulled in that direction naturally. And I think we can plant those seeds in our daily life in a loving way. If someone is wounded, you don't hit them again. You try to, like you say, you, you extend your hand to them and try to help them out. And so that's what I really see. Veganism essentially is love. It's loving kindness and caring for others. And the more we can live that, the more we'll find it boomeranging back and our movement getting stronger. And well, what is your advice to vegans who are there in that place? They're living this life happily. A lot has changed for them. And they would like to become more active and become activists for the vegan cause. What would you advise them? I think that's a great. I think becoming, turning our, the pain, because we, as vegans, we feel pain. We know what these cows and pigs and chickens and fishes are, what they're going through. So if we don't turn it into action, it can very often make us sick or it can make us depressed or angry or upset or, so it, we have to act. I really think it's important to act. But I think well, there's different ways of acting. Some people will act by joining an organization perhaps, and we can work with organizations. And organizations can be helpful, but I've seen problems with organizations because very often we have this idealism for the animals, but with time, our loyalty shifts gradually from the animals to the organization. <laughs> so I think personally that a lot of independent activists working in their own ways is the best way to go. Just find something that you feel that you can contribute in a certain way, because we all have unique skills, talents, and abilities. And what are they? Take an inventory, get a feeling, and what is it I really love to do? And maybe it's just communicating, talking to people, sharing ideas, but there may be something you can do, like maybe music or art or writing or video or dance or making, writing stories, literature. There's so many different ways we can plug in. Working in the political realm, that's important. So there's lots of different places we can plug in. And I think the main thing is to find a way that we can just do a little something every day that will help it. That's what I did. I just, I thought I've got to do something. And so I started writing and I started speaking and one thing led to another. And pretty soon, and I think we all have, or my wife, Madeline, is her main thing is painting and showing the beauty of these animals and then also creating really healthy food and doing videos of that. And other people, we see all, doing all kinds of great things. Some people buy a little land and have a sanctuary or try to work or work on a sanctuary or take care of animals. There's so many things. So the idea, I think, is to try to realize we're in one of these situations where we're making it up as we're going along. The more each one of us can find our niche, and sometimes that means being creative, and it doesn't mean it'll be easy. The whole idea is that it, it, our life isn't meant to be easy, but it's meant to be our life, <laughs> our unique life, our unique authentic life. And when we're, and there's an inherent joy in that. If we're doing something, we wake up and there's something we're doing that we know is making life a little bit better for other people or, or animals, then we have a motivation to wake up and live. And I think when that happens, our health and our basic sense of joy and our sense of self-respect really comes back. So if we're vegans, we're already having a wonderful foundation for self-respect and for a purpose because we are not contributing to the violence of others and we're not shutting down our natural intelligence. So now then to add to that something that we can do to bring this message to other people, handing out literature, there's all kinds of things, really working with groups or working alone, making a team with other people to do something in a neighborhood. 
to raise awareness. And it could be about food, it could be about fur, it could be about circuses, it could be about rodeos, whatever. But just to find what your, what your heart most yearns to express. I think that's really the most important thing. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Will. And uh, something really important you mentioned also is joy. Find our joy and use right. that as our fuel, because uh, no matter what our mission is, what our, our outlook on life is based on fear, that will always yeah. be part of what we're doing. So we need to find a way to be rooted in joy. Totally. <laughs> yeah. When joy is our motivation, then we start seeing the best in other people also. And when we see the best in other people, we pull that out of them. We should actually pull out the best in other people. So instead of criticizing them, we see the best in them and they start acting more in alignment with, with their true nature. And I think that means we have to do that for ourselves as well. Always yeah. extend that kindness mm -hmm. to ourselves also. I would like to know from you, being in part of this movement, part of this evolution of humanity for so many decades, where do you see the future of veganism in our world? I think, quite honestly, we don't have a future if it's not vegan, I think. It's becoming really obvious that this is the most important transitional accomplishment, I think, really, for human beings right now is to liberate animals because now we have the technology and the centralization of power through that technology that if we continue to dominate and exploit animals we, and turn them into livestock, we're going to find ourselves more and more being turned into livestock and dominated ourselves. So liberating animals is the number one most important action for human beings to take, to do it ourselves and to share these ideas with others. And if we do that, as we do that, the, uh, the positive future that's available to us that I see, I can see it as this open doorway that's open and it's beckoning, it's a pathway to it. And each one of us can help our culture go down the pathway to a positive future. It's absolutely beckoning. The earth is abundant and beautiful and can easily support all of us. As Gandhi said, there's plenty for everyone's need, not for everyone's greed. So as we live that ourselves, we have a beautiful future of health and freedom and abundance and sustainability absolutely available to us. Animal agriculture will never allow that to happen because it's based on a lie. It's based on a deception of violence and exploitation of others. But as we abandon that with joy, joyfully abandon that, joyfully question, joyfully refuse to comply with the narratives of violence and domination and exploitation and, and stealing the sovereignty of other beings and assert our own sovereignty and, and sovereignty of all beings, then we create a positive future and we're helping to put that into place. I don't know how exactly it's going to unfold. I think it has a lot to do with decentralization, getting more independent with food and energy and information like we're doing here and sharing our ideas together. And as we do that and work together in community with those around us, we can think globally and act locally and help make this happen ourselves. So I think it's really one of those things where each one of us is learning by doing and being an example and sharing these ideas, but we, it's definitely happening. I think ultimately we will see a vegan world being born out of all of this. It's a birth. It's, it's somewhat traumatic in many ways. A lot of things have to fall away. A lot of old systems have to fall away. We have to really let go of the domination of the narratives by the pharmaceutical medical complex and by the war machine and really start creating our own narratives like this through decentralized means of sharing ideas with each other. 
So yeah. thank you so much for what you're doing, because that's exactly the most important thing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And lastly, but not leastly, I'd love to wrap up this really beautiful conversation. If you were willing to share with us maybe a practice of yours that has could have accompanied you for all of your life or something new that enhances you mentally, physically, and or spiritually. One of the meditations that I find really helpful is called the Four Viharas which is the Sanskrit word, vahara means abode. And this four viharas is the four aspects of our true home or abode, which are love, compassion, joy, and peace. So it's a practice I do every day. And I think we can do it either sitting and, and just take 10 minutes and just breathe in and generate the feeling of love and kindness and benevolence and then radiate that into the world. And then do the same thing with compassion, feel a sense of compassion and empathy and the yearning to help relieve the suffering of others and then radiate that into the world and then connect with a feeling of joy and breathe that into the world. A joy that doesn't need any reasons, just the joy of being, our true nature. And then finally, a sense of peace and harmony. And just live in that sense and then just radiate that to everyone around us. And we can do that also while we're driving the car or standing in line at the post office and just send love to people around us and compassion and joy and peace. They don't have to even know we're doing it. And it just transforms our relationship really with the people around us and with ourselves. So that if someone says something that's not very nice or cut us, cuts us off in traffic, instead of reacting, we can just naturally send them some love because people are wounded. And when people are wounded, they do things that maybe we don't like. But at a deeper level, the best way to transform that is to send love out, send love and compassion and joy and peace. So I think... Cultivating the four Baharas of love, compassion, joy, and peace. It's as we go through our day and let it radiate out to the people we see and imagine it going out to animals and future generations and just be a radiating center of those dimensions of consciousness. Then we find that every cell in our being gets imbued with that as well. And we're much healthier and happier and other people will be as well. Well, so people who'd like to learn more about you and connect with you, where can they find you? The best way probably is just on our website, Will Tuttle, my name, W-I-L-T-U-T-L-E.com or worldpeacediet.com. Either one of those has our tour schedule, articles that I'm writing, videos, and also Madeline's cooking videos, our music videos, our food forest videos, and our training. We have a special training, the World Peace Diet facilitator training if people would like to go deeper into these ideas and become a World Peace Diet facilitator. So we're happy to stay in touch with people and answer any questions you may have. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for everything you're doing, helping to inspire and steward us, the human family, towards humanity 2.0. Much gratitude. Okay. Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. 